As the children are going to their special church program, let me invite your attention, if I could, to the book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 15. And I think one next Sunday is one day after Christmas. Does that sound right? So I thought we'd do our Christmas message next week so we can figure it out what it is we just celebrated. Doing things a little bit different uh, this year. Because I really didn't know how to tie this passage into Christmas, to be honest with you. And you'll understand when I give you this title. The title of our message this morning is The Ultimate Real Estate Deal. (laughs) Doesn't really fit with Christmas, does it? And as you're turning there, I just want to invite you to come out for Christmas Eve service here uh, at the church on campus or join us online if you can. We will live stream it. And Christmas Eve is sort of a family time. And we want to respect that, so we just sort of gather to um, sing some traditional uh, Christmas songs and to hear a a brief devotional from myself, which many of you don't think can happen, but it can happen. And we'll be out before an hour even elapses. And it's just a time to keep Christ in your thinking, you know, during a very busy time of the year. As you know, we have been continuing our study through the book of Genesis. We have finished the first section of the book, which is four events. Creation, fall, flood, national dispersion, and that promise there of Genesis 3, verse 15 which is really what Christmas is all about, has been traced for us through that section. And then we moved into chapters 12 through 50, where we learned of a special nation that God was raising up to mediate these this Messiah to the world. And that nation, of course, is the nation of Israel, and it begins with God's dealings with a man named Abram. And so we have been tracing as we've gone verse by verse through the life, early life and journeys of Abram. And we came to chapter 15, which is such a pivotal chapter in the Bible. We've been spending our time as we've been going through it, where the promise that God made to Abram has been clarified. This seed descendants and descendant that's coming will come forth from your own body. Which means God is going to have to do a miracle for this to occur. Abram believed the promise and the moment he believed it, it was credited to him for righteousness. And then God made to Abram or clarified a second promise that he was going to give him land. A tract of real estate that was dominated at that time by a very wicked group of people called the Canaanites. And God says to Abram, you and your descendants are going to possess all of it one day. 
And of course, Abram asks, well, how do I know that that's going to happen? Verse 8, after the promise is made, verse 7. And God says, I'll personally guarantee it by entering into a covenant with you. This is something called the Abrahamic covenant. Verses 9 through 11, it actually goes all the way through the end of the chapter. And it's very difficult to understand the rest of the Bible. In fact, it's impossible to understand the rest of the Bible without understanding the transaction that God himself enters into at this early point in human history. So we have been talking about God's promise, Abram's question, and then God says, prepare the animal pieces which is I'll show you today and tried to show you last week. This is part of a covenant ritual ceremony of the most solemn nature. And then God says, verses 12 through 16, um, just so you know that I'm going to do everything that I said I would do, I'm going to make you a short-term prediction. Your descendants are going to go into bondage for 400 years and are going to come out of that. And if I can bring them out of that and bring them back into their own land, then you can certainly trust me to do everything else I've obligated myself to do in this covenant. Because much of the language, as I'll show you as we move through this, has never been fulfilled. God, I believe, is in the process of beginning to fulfill all of that language today. And it will be fulfilled ultimately in the future millennial kingdom. So notice, if you will, verse 15 is where we left off last time. And it says there, as God is speaking to Abram in verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. So this is a prediction of Abram's death. Verse uh, 15, and it's a prediction that he would go to his fathers in peace. In other words, he himself would not see the bondage that is spoken of in these promises. Because some of these promises are very, very difficult because they are going to involve um, bondage and a sojourn in a strange land called Egypt. And if God is faithful in the midst of that, he can be faithful in the midst of all of it. But Abram, you're going to die before this bondage takes place. You yourself are going to go to your fathers in peace. Now, you'll notice this expression, you're going to go to your fathers. This is very critical because there are many people today who do not believe that the concept of resurrection... And the concept of the of eternal life is spoken of this early on in biblical history. In fact, the kind of the uh, fashion, the wave, the vogue of Old Testament scholars, and sadly, I studied under such people, will basically tell you, not all, but many will tell you that, oh, the concept of resurrection and the afterlife, that really doesn't show up until the book of Daniel which would be roughly 1,400 years uh, later. In other words, Abram himself knew nothing about the afterlife. Abram himself 
knew nothing about future resurrection. And they're right, it only becomes clearer in Daniel. Daniel 12, verse 2, you have probably the clearest statement on that, where it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So they're right. The issue doesn't get clear until you get to the book of Daniel. But I'm of the persuasion that although the clarity that we might want on the issue uh, isn't quite there in Abram's life, the issue is still there. All of these people in ancient history believed in resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. In fact, you might just want to slip over to Genesis 22, verse 2, just for a minute. Verses that we'll eventually get to. And it's there that God tells Abram to take his only son, who he has waited for, and to offer him as a sacrifice unto God on Mount Moriah. Genesis 22, verse 2 says, Take now your only son, whom you love, Isaac. That's the child of promise yet to be born in Genesis 15. But he is born in Genesis 21. And God says, I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. He said to him, Take now your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. I mean, how would you like to be in Abram's circumstances where he's waited and waited and waited for this child to be born? The child is born against all odds. And now God says, I want you to take your child and I want you to kill the child as a sacrifice to me. If you look very carefully at verse 5, you'll see Abram's belief in a future resurrection. Abram said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I, that's Abraham now, and the lad, Isaac, will go over there. There is Mount Moriah where this sacrifice was going to happen before God stayed Abraham's hand. Abram said to to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. And what's the next word there? We will worship and return to you. Close quote. After Isaac is offered, we, that's me and Isaac, are going to come right back. Now, when you study that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, what you'll learn there is at this point, Abram's faith, Abraham's faith, was so well developed that he believed that even if he killed Isaac, God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. So quite clearly, Abraham believed in a future resurrection. This idea that the future resurrection is not taught until the book of Daniel is patently untrue. There it is right there in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 5. And it's also here, going back to Genesis 15, it's also here in our passage. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this, By stating, you shall go to your fathers, which we just read in Genesis 15 and verse 5, God is saying that the ancestors of Abram 
are viewed as being in a definite place to which Abram will, will go. The definite place is Sheol in the center of the earth. This kind of phraseology always emphasizes the afterlife and reflects faith in the afterlife. Furthermore, this has to be a reference to the soul of Abram and not to the internment of his body because his fathers, doesn't he say here, you will go to your fathers? His fathers or the fathers of Abram were in Haran and not, and in Ur. But they were not here in the land called Canaan where Abram's physical remains would be buried. You're going to go to your fathers. It's not a statement that he's going to somehow be buried not in the land of Canaan, but in Ur of the Chaldeans and in Haran. That would be geographically uh, quite an undertaking. But you're going to join your fathers in the afterlife. And so when the Bible makes statements like this, you need to pay attention to it because it's a refutation of modern-day Old Testament scholarship, which basically is saying, oh, they didn't believe in an afterlife at the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before the time of Christ. They didn't believe in a future resurrection. That's all nonsense. These ideas aren't developed the way we would like. They're not crystallized the way we, we would like. They don't become crystal clear until Daniel 12 and verse 2, but they're all, they're all there. Of course, the New Testament clearly tells us where Abraham went. He went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And it says there concerning the man on the other side of the ravine, so to speak, the unbeliever who was in torment, It says, he cried out and said, Father Abraham, that's our guy, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that we might, he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides between all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. One of the most um, stunning, staggering, uh, clearest statements of the afterlife that you can find in the Bible is right there in Luke 16 involving this man that we're studying. And I think Abram hints at this and the story dealing with Abram hints at this because he says you will be joined to your father's. These are things to keep in mind because we're being inundated with a mindset from cable, the History Channel, Mysteries of the Bible, A&E. Well, they'll bring on scholars constantly to somehow always chip away at the Bible, chisel away at the Bible, and they'll say very glib things, even some evangelical scholars saying this, that there is no such thing as resurrection or the afterlife until the book of Daniel, and yet you can see things in the text that make that teaching untrue. 
And you need to be in a position to narrate these things correctly to your children and your grandchildren whose minds are being propagandized with statement after statement designed to shrink the Bible to less than it says. The afterlife is a very real thing. In fact, the afterlife is just as real and is just as much a conscious state as is this life. You don't end this life by suddenly disappearing into the never-never zone or into some kind of soul sleep as if you never existed at all. It's very real. And it's very true. And this is a, this is a doctrine that God wants us to understand from Genesis to Revelation. And even here very early on in the book of Genesis, you see that doctrine developing. The choices that we're making right now will affect us for all eternity. The ultimate choice, of course, is what you're going to do with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Are you going to trust Him for salvation or not? Whatever decision a human being makes on that front is something that will have eternal consequences and ramifications. And then as we grow as Christians in the walk of sanctification and we make choices, those choices have eternal repercussions. There's a judgment of rewards where some are rewarded, others not so much. Although everyone's happy that they're in heaven. And so it's another case of decisions I make, choices I make. Am I going to stay a grudge holder against so-and-so that offended me? Or am I going to, as the saying goes, get over it? What a great time to get over it as we're moving into a new year. Am I going to forgive as I've been forgiven? That choice, whether I choose to succumb to the walk of the Holy Spirit or not, that's another choice that will affect me and my destiny throughout the ages in terms of rewards. Am I going to move into this sin or not? Am I going to give the Lord more time in terms of Bible study and prayer or not as a Christian? That has eternal consequences as well. And one of the things Satan wants you to believe is there is no afterlife. There is no future judgment. It's very interesting that when you go back into American history, into colonial America, where the different state governments posted the requirements for people to hold office, typically what you see in almost every state, of course at that time we only have our East Coast states, colonial America, even then they probably weren't even called states, But if you wanted to represent the United States of America, you wanted to represent your city, you wanted to be representing people in terms of political leadership, then you go back into some of those documents and you see, well, one of the things you have to believe is you have to believe in the reality of the afterlife. If you don't believe in the reality of the afterlife, then you're unfit for office. I think things have changed a little bit since then. And why would it keep saying in province after province, you have to believe in the Old Testament is inspired by God, the New Testament is inspired by God, you have to believe in a future judgment, you have to believe in an afterlife, because the people that founded the United States of America were smart enough to understand that (laughs) 
someone, if, if we believe someone is watching, then we're going to mind our P's and Q's in office, right? If you don't believe in an afterlife, and you believe this life is all there is, would you trust such a person with political power? And you see, this type of thinking is almost looked at as archaic today. Some would probably call it even hate speech. They would use all kinds of words like discriminatory or whatever to marginalize it. But the truth of the matter is that's how the country was founded. The reality of an afterlife. The reality of future rewards and judgments. Because people live differently if they believe that. If Satan erases the whole concept from your mind and you don't believe in a future accountability, then you live differently in the negative respect. I think it was Noah Webster, if I remember right, that was asked the question, what is the the greatest thought you've ever thought in your life? And you know who Noah Webster was. Um, One of the great patriots that founded the United States. Webster's Dictionary a great mind, and he was asked, what's the greatest thought you've ever thought about? And he said, here's the greatest thought I've ever thought about, and that's my accountability to God. He believed that he was accountable for what he did and what he didn't do by God in the next life. And that's why it disturbs me greatly to see Old Testament commentary and Old Testament commentary come out on the book of Genesis telling people that there is no such thing as the afterlife or future resurrection in early Genesis. Nonsense. You can see it developing very early on in the book of Genesis. We continue on in Genesis 15, verse 15, and it says, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You, God speaking to Abram, will die at a good old age. It is a wonderful thing, and we've seen the death here of several key patriarchs in the book of Genesis. The death of Adam, Genesis 5, the death of Noah, Genesis 9, now we have the death of, future death of Abraham. Abraham, of course, won't die until Genesis 25, verse 8. But God says to Abraham, Abram, then to become Abraham, when you die, you're going to die at a good old age. And what a joy that is to get to the point of death and to look back at your life and you say to yourself, you know what, I spent my life the right way. Life is a lot like having $100 in your hand. And I realize $100 today doesn't mean what it meant last year. But you've got $100 in your hand and you can spend it any way you want. But once it's spent, it can only be spent one time. You can't retrieve what you just did, typically. And that's how life is. Life is very short. It's very brief. It's very transitory. And God has put us into this unique time and place. And he said, make choices. But you have to understand that whatever choice you're making today good or bad, you can't make that choice again tomorrow. It's made. It's uh, spent. And Abram, of course, not a perfect character, as we have seen 
and we'll see. Because he has a big fall in the very next chapter, Genesis 16. But overall, Abram could look back at his life and said, you know what, I spent it the right way. You have to understand that when people get on their deathbed, a lot of them can't say that. I'm reminded very much of what Mark Twain, his pen name, what he says here in his autobiography. He says, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them and infirmities follow. Shames and humiliation bring down their prides and vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, and misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanished from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they left no sign that they have existed, a world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever, close quote. Sort of the perspective of the godless as they look back on their life, as they find themselves at death's door. Contrast that with what Paul the Apostle said about his life just before he died. We know he made this statement just prior to his death because in verse 16 of that same chapter, he talks about how he is about to be poured out as a drink offering. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. And he makes this statement that's so, so, so different than what you find with Mark Twain. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me the, <laughs> the crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, he says, but to all who have loved his appearing, close quote. It's kind of interesting that when people get to the end of their lives and they don't have much time left, they kind of spill concerning what's really going on in their heart. And and may we be the type of people like Noah, like Adam, like Abram, who could look back at a life and say, you know, Lord, it wasn't perfect, a perfect life, but overall, you got your will in my life. I mean, what you wanted to do in my life was executed. Uh, That's a gift from God to be able to say that. That's a blessing. Because most people can't say that. I might even venture to say that a lot of Christianity can't say it. Because Paul opens the door to the reality of a carnal Christian. 
1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. He's not applauding carnal Christianity. He is talking about the unfortunate possibility of carnal Christianity. And how at that Bema Seat judgment, there's a, as God is giving out rewards, there's regret, there's tears, he says. They suffer loss. As people are in heaven suffering loss. For a season, and this is where people want to know these very specific questions. How long will the memories last? How do you, you know, sort of conflate being with Jesus but having a moment of regret? How do those two work out? I don't know if I have all the answers to it. I just know that the Bible warns us about that. Not so we can get into a bunch of pontificating, but so that we can make adjustments now. The truth of the matter is if you're unsaved, you need to make a big adjustment because the afterlife is very real. And if you are saved and walking in the flesh habitually, which is an unfortunate possibility for the Christian, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, we need to make adjustments now because heaven is real. Eternity is long. Life is short. And what an important thing to think about as we move into a new year. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Did you know that? That you are saved not by good works? But you are saved for good works. Do you realize that the moment you place your faith in Christ alone for salvation is the moment that God not only saved your soul from eternal retribution, but he programmed into your life the blessing that you would be to other people. You're not saved by good works, but you're certainly saved Four good works. Very different understanding of salvation than what we typically get. That, oh, I've trusted in Jesus. My fire insurance is paid up. But the truth of the matter is, God has much more in store for a person's life than simply having their fire insurance paid up and not going to hell. He wants to replicate spiritual fruit in and through them, and many people say, well, if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not saved. We don't teach that here. Because this verse, the way it's set up in Greek, does not make the good works flowing from salvation automatic. Reformed theology does that. It's the so-called perseverance of the saints doctrine As taught in modern day Calvinism, if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not a Christian. The Bible says that's a very simplistic way to understand it. And the reason I'm saying that is walk, peripateo in Greek, is in the subjunctive mood in Greek. I'm not going to bore people with a bunch of information on Greek and Greek tenses unless it's pertinent to the passage. And here it's couldn't be more pertinent. You know what the subjunctive mood is? It's the mood of possibility. When he says you're not saved by works, but you're saved 
unto good works, what he is saying is the good works that flow from salvation are a possibility. They're not automatic. God wants them, God desires them, but in the middle tense of salvation, progressive sanctification, you've got to start cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And you have the complete and total ability as a child of God to say no to the Holy Spirit. And to 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19, to resist the Holy Spirit. You have the ability as a Christian to grieve the Holy Spirit. Or else Ephesians 4 wouldn't say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, don't resist the Holy Spirit. And so a lot of people will leave this life as Christians, joyful that they're on their way to heaven, but look back with a lot of regrets. I wish I had submitted unto the Lord, under his power, more frequently. I wish I hadn't always resisted the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible gives us a warning about this. The afterlife is real. Good works are a possibility. Now press into that purpose. Because whatever decisions we're making on a daily basis as Christians will have eternal ramifications just like whatever decision an unsaved or saved person makes concerning the salvation that is freely offered in Jesus Christ, those will have eternal ramifications as well because the next life is just as real as this life. And in fact, early America, if you don't want to believe this, then you can't hold office because we can't monitor everything you're doing in office, can we? But if you believe this, you're going to act differently because you understand that someone bigger than yourself is monitoring. I think we're losing a lot of this teaching in American society. Would you, would you not agree? We come to verse 16 and God continues on describing the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, then in the fourth generation, they, now Abram, that's your descendants because you're going to die in peace and go to be with your fathers so you will not see what your descendants are going to see in terms of the Egyptian bondage for 400 years. Then in the fourth generation, they, that's your future lineage, will return here for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. Notice this expression here. Your descendants are going to go into bondage, and they're going to come out of bondage, and they're going to come right back into this land that you're now standing in, where I'm making you all of these promises, and they're going to come back in the fourth generation. Earlier, if you back up to verse 13, we know exactly what he means by fourth generation. He means 400 years. The truth of the matter, folks, is you hold in your hand a book that has predicted not one, not two, but three occurrences of a people group being displaced from their land and coming right back into the same land. Now, you have to understand something, that this is a... Anomaly in world history. I don't know of a single group, 
and maybe some of you do, but I don't know of a single group that's ever been displaced from their land, particularly for 400 years, and then comes right back into the same land. Not once, not twice, but it's predicted that it will happen three times. People say, well, why do you believe the Bible is God's word? It's because of things like this. I don't know of any other alleged holy book on planet Earth that's made accurate predictions like this. Well, what are the three returns? Return number one, we're reading about right here. You're going to go out of the land, you're going to be in Egyptian bondage, and you're going to come back into the same land 400 years later. And can we check the box there? Let's just go check, because that happened, didn't it? That return happened in the book of Joshua. And then, later on in biblical history, about 1,400 years after this prediction was made, God made a second prediction. And he told the nation of Israel, in particular the southern kingdom, and you'll see this in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 11, and chapter 29, verse 10, God says, I'm going to predict it again. You're going to leave this land and you're going to go 350 miles to the east to a place called Babylon. And you better get comfortable there because you're not coming back for 70 years. But when the 70 years are over, you're going to come right back from Babylon into the land of Israel. And what do we do with that one? Let's go to the square there, the empty square, and go check. Because that happened in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And then God in the book of Ezekiel says a third time it's going to happen. But this time it's going to be different. You won't just go into Egypt and come back. You won't just go into Babylon and come back. But you're going to be dispersed all over the world. And we know that Rome in AD 70 destroyed the city and the sanctuary and pushed the Jews outside of their land where they went for 2,000 years into what's called the diaspora, the worldwide dispersion. And Ezekiel, long before it happened, said, you're going to come back into your own land. You'll see that in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. By the way, they will never read Ezekiel 37, 36, verses 24 through 28 on CNN. Nor on MSNBC. And it's probably hard-pressed this day and age to even see it on Fox. Because Ezekiel doesn't say, when you come back, you're going to come back in someone else's land. You understand the propaganda that we're under today? That people want you to think that the modern state of Israel dispersed an ancient people group, which is factually in error. And they want you to believe that when the Jews came back, they came back into someone else's land. The whole world community looks at that issue in the Middle East through that lens. God says no. When you come back... From worldwide dispersion, this time, not after 400 years, not after 70 years, but after 2,000 years. 
you'll come right back into your same land. And I'm here to tell you that that's happening right before our eyes. So what do you do with that one? Well, we might put a check by it, but God says don't do that too quick because I'm not finished yet. Because by the time it's all said and done, Israel will have sprinkled upon her the Holy Spirit. She'll be in faith. We haven't seen that yet. But God says, do you think I could do that last component? Not just have a recycled land, but have a nation in faith. Could I actually do that? God says, trust me for it. And we kind of feel like Abraham. Well, Lord, how do I know you're going to do it? And God says, look at the history books. Look at the track record. I mean, I predicted it once. It happened. I predicted it a second time. It happened. Why can't you believe me when I say I'm going to do it a third time? What you're seeing happening in the modern state of Israel today is an absolute miracle of God. People say, gosh, I wish God would do miracles today. Are you kidding me? Every time you see a functioning nation in the Middle East called the nation of Israel, you're seeing a modern-day miracle for this simple reason. The sociologists all tell us that when a nation is removed from their land, essentially what happens is they lose their culture. They lose their language. They lose their ethnicity. In many cases, they lose their religion because they essentially assimilate into the host culture. For example, um, how many Jebusites do you know exactly? Hey, so-and-so and so-and-so just moved in down the street. What a lovely Jebusite couple. What happened to the Jebusites? They were displaced and assimilated into another people group where we don't have Jebusites anymore. Do you understand what's happening? That the Lord has allowed Israel to be outside of its land, not just for 40 years, not just for 70 years, but for 2,000 years, and they go right back into the land that they were evicted from. The only thing we're waiting for is the Spirit of God to be poured out on the nation, which to me is pretty easy to believe that it'll happen. Given this track record that I'm talking about. The Roman Empire in AD 70 was a worldwide empire speaking Latin. They are the ones that pushed Israel out of her homeland at the close of the first century. And isn't it interesting that when they did that, Latin was a live language, Rome was a worldwide power, and here we are in 2021, and Rome went out of power a long time ago, and Latin is a dead language. And yet tiny Israel is in existence speaking Hebrew. It's it's an amazing thing that God is doing right in our midst. And the first of the three returns is spelled out here in verse 16. But God has a problem. In fact, it's not much of a problem for God. But it is a problem from the human perspective because there's a group of people living in the land at the time of Abram called the Amorites. 
And God says here, then in the fourth generation they, that's your future descendants, Abram, will return here. Well, what about the Amorites, Lord? It says here, for the wrongdoing or the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Who are these Amorites? Who are these Amorites that were, from the human perspective, encumbering God's desire to recycle Israel back into her homeland in the time of Joshua? Well, as you know by now, Noah had three sons. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and from Ham came a group of people, or came a son named Canaan. Canaan, of course, was the one that was put under a curse, not because of genetics, not because of race, but because he imitated some of the detestable practices of his father Ham, And Ham, you remember, uncovered Noah's nakedness. The apple doesn't too far, too fall. There we go. The apple doesn't fall. There we go. Too far from the tree. Amen. These are, I've got a rented lips today, so bear with me. (laughs) And so essentially what happened is Canaan committed that sin. And gosh, if sin is okay for dad... Sin is okay for us. Boy, that's a great lesson for us, isn't it? Because we think when we sin, nobody sees, nobody's aware. Oh, you've got quite a congregation. You've got them in your own house. And typically, they're your children or your grandchildren. And so if church attendance is not that important for grandma and grandpa, it's not that important for me. If reading the Bible is not very important to grandma and grandpa or mom and dad, then it's not important to me. And we're wondering why we're losing a whole group of young people to the cause of Christ. It starts right there in the home. So Ham sins, excuse me, Canaan, Ham sins, and so his descendants are put under a curse because they fell into sin. And it's from Canaan that this group of people settled in the land of Canaan. And here's all their names. The Jebusites, the Amorites, who I have underlined there, because they're mentioned in Genesis 15, verse 16. The Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, the Hamathites, the Perizzites, the Out-of-Sites, the Termites, the Mosquito Bites, and the... Electric lights. I just got to make sure you guys are still listening. So that whole group is involved in some of the most disgusting, despicable practices that they could ever be involved in. How do I know that? Because that's how God describes them. Having imitated Ham. If you want a description of them, you just read Leviticus 18. 24 through 30, which says, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment so that the land will spew out its inhabitants. 
But as for you, Israel, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nations which were before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, these persons who do shall be cut off from among their people. Thus you are to keep my charge so that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourself with them. I am the Lord your God. Gee, Pastor, that is so depressing. I hope you never read a verse like that again. Well, let's cheer up because when you go to Leviticus 22... Excuse me, 20, verses 22 and 23, it says, You therefore are to keep all my statutes and my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations, which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I am abhorred. Verses 26 and 27 of Leviticus 20. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now a man or woman who is to be a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltness is upon them. He's describing what these Amorites through the Ham Canaan line were doing for 400 years. You say, I'm sure glad those passages are over with. I hope you'll never read a passage like that again. Well, notice Deuteronomy 8, 18, verses 9 through 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable practices of these nations that I have there on the screen. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination or one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. I mean, we do that today already on the psychic hotline. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for the nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. What you're getting in Leviticus and what you're getting in Deuteronomy is a description of what these Amorites and groups, others that I have on the screen there, were doing for 400 years. In fact, when you study the archaeology of this time period, it's modern-day pornography is what it is. When you look at the statues, statues and the inscriptions, some of it is, is so, so vulgar. 
it would be inappropriate to put archaeology of this time period up on a visual in a church setting. This, um, in essence, is what the curse of Canaan brought. Canaan imitated Ham. Ham begat these groups who went into the land of Canaan and continued these despicable practices. By the way, the curse of Canaan, you'll find it right there in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 25. We've gone over it in depth as we've gone through this series on the book of Genesis. And what does God say here? This is a justification for the audience that's receiving this information. Because this book is being written to the group of people that came out of Egyptian bondage who are commanded by God to go into the land of Canaan and eradicate the Canaanites. And unless you had a book explaining this kind of history, the command of God might seem overbearing. The command of God might seem too severe, but when you understand the history here that only the book of Genesis gives you, what you see here is not the judgment of God, but the grace of God. Because God allowed this to go on and on and on and on for 400 years, which as I like to say is almost double roughly the longevity of the United States of America. Just to give you a time barometer, how long God allowed this to continue before judgment hit through the slaughter of the Canaanites through General Joshua. By the way, these uh, these Canaanites, don't get this idea that they were just swept off guard because they had no knowledge of God. They had a knowledge of God. Do you know how I know they had a knowledge of God? I know they had a knowledge of God because of what Rahab, the Canaanite, says when the spies entered the land. Rahab said, for we, that's all of us here in Canaan, have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, so when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. I don't know how they got the message, but they knew what God had done through the first generation that came out of Egypt, and they knew what God had done on behalf of the second generation about to enter Canaan. They had an awareness of God. They had a knowledge of God. Somehow they got the message, but they suppressed it. Why? Because their sin, I suppose, was more important to them than than righteous judgment. They lived in denial. And yet God puts up with this for 400 years. Let me tell you something. On cable television, they will never give you this side of the equation. The only thing they'll talk about is what a meanie God is for wiping these people out. They don't talk about the window of grace that was allowed before judgment came. See, part of this deception that we're under is we think, well, there's been a delay in judgment. I guess it's being denied. We confuse delay for denial. And we presuppose 
on the grace of God. I would think that that's the kind of thing that they were doing in Genesis chapter 6 before the flood came where God's spirit was striving with man for 120 years. And yet judgment eventually hit. In spite of the fact that God was patiently waiting in the days of Noah, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. I am so glad I have this verse in my Bible. Is this in your Bible? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There, there is a tremendous reservoir of grace and patience and long-suffering in God. But the truth of the matter is, eventually even God's patience gets exhausted and judgment happens. This is what happened in the days of Noah through the flood. And this is what is being predicted now would happen 400 years later, long after Abraham's death. Under General Joshua, after God patiently endured all of this sin for a period of 400 years, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's why it's going to take 400 years for this to be executed. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Of all of the pulpits across the United States of America today, how many pulpits do you think are saying things like this? I would think very, very few. The judgment of God, it's it's like water building up behind a dam. And eventually the water becomes so voluminous that the dam breaks. That's what Paul the Apostle said to the unbelieving Jews. He says, you're basically storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. Eventually the water is going to become so voluminous that the dam will break and the judgment of God will come forth. This is what is being spoken of in Genesis 15 and verse 16 where he says, for the iniquity of the Amorite, and you know where they came from, is not yet complete. It's talking about a group of people that are ripe for judgment. Ripe for a harvest of judgment. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But when I look at the culture here in the United States, and I look at the direction that it's headed in, I have to at some point say, how long is it before the judgment of God comes to this country? Particularly when the United States of America has a knowledge of God. 
I mean, earlier I, sh- I made reference to early colonial America, how you couldn't even hold office, and yet unless you believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you believe that God is both a future rewarder of good behavior and judge of sin in the next life. You don't believe that, you can't hold office. And here we have this tremendous... Christian heritage in the United States, and we just live our lives as if God doesn't exist at all. As if all of God's standards could just be rewritten. That's what they were doing before the flood. That's what the Amorites were doing for 400 years. And yes, the judgment of God did come, but after a time of tremendous, tremendous Patience and forbearance. So, God makes a promise to Abraham, verse 7. Abraham asks a question, verse 8. God answers Abraham's question by preparing the animal pieces for the ultimate real estate deal, verses 9 through 11. And then God builds into it a short-term prediction that will be fulfilled within 400 years. Because if you can believe the fact that God kept his word concerning that short-term prediction, then everything else God promises in the ultimate real estate deal will be executed with precision as well. So that takes us away from that and into the covenant ratification ceremony. Where you have a ceremony described, verse 18... Which, excuse me, a ceremony described verse 17, which leads to a covenant verse 18. And that covenant happens to involve land, verses 18 through 21. And now you have a description for the very first time of the borders and the parameters of this real estate that's about to be bequeathed to Abram and to his descendants. And so look at that. I entitled this sermon, The Ultimate Real Estate Deal, and we didn't even get to the real estate deal. (laughs) Which means the next time I pick this up, which won't be next week, because we're doing a Christmas message next week. Do you think this kind of thing would preach on Christmas? Probably not. So Christmas message next week, but the following week will be The Ultimate Real Estate Deal, Part 2. And if you're here today visiting or listening online and you don't know Christ personally, um, our exhortation to people is the gospel. The gospel is good news because Jesus did everything. Jesus entered history and did something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And the truth of the matter, as you look at the screen here in way of closing, there's only two ways here. There's the path of religion or there's the grace of God. The path of religion is right there at the top of the screen. It basically says Jesus did about 90%. Jesus bought lunch. You need to leave the tip. Well, how do you leave the tip? Three things, pay, pray, and obey. Well, how much do I pay, pray, and obey? They never tell you. 
So you left your whole life wondering if you've done enough to merit God's favor. That's religion. The religious world will tell you that over and over again. Here at Sugarland Bible Church, we are not the voice of religion. We are the voice of biblical, biblically based Christianity, which says, bottom of the screen, Jesus did what? 100%. In fact, his final words on the cross were, it is finished. So what is there left for you to do as a lost person? Not to pay, pray, and obey, but to receive a gift. And the only way to receive a gift from God is to trust or believe in the one he has sent. In fact, that's what Jesus was asked in John 6, verses 28 and 29. They said, what must we do to do the works of God? Sounds like a very religious question, doesn't it? Lord, what do I got to do to be made right with you? And Jesus said in those verses, this is the work that you believe in the one he has sent. They wanted to talk about works. Jesus said, no, let's talk about a work. The ultimate work is the work I'm going to do for you on the cross. But your job is to believe in the one he has sent. Your job is to rely upon what I will do for you, not what you do for yourself. And this is the difference between Christianity that's biblically based and the world of religion. doesn't matter what name or vernacular or denomination it goes under. It's just the same old stuff. You're either telling people they've got to leave the tip or you're saying it's all free. Lunch is paid for. The tip has been left. Now come and partake. Come and enjoy. The, the, the truth of the matter, folks, is this. It's a lot easier to give a gift than to receive it. Because when you receive something that cannot be earned, that requires humility, doesn't it? And God has designed it this way. He has designed the gospel in such a way that it is an affront. It is an attack on the pride of man who always wants to bargain with God. Earn something from God. And we're here to tell you that you can't earn anything from God. God does the work. You receive it as a gift. What a great time of the year to receive a gift, by the way. I mean, as all these gifts are being exchanged and given, why not receive the ultimate gift that he has for you? The death of his son for the payment of your sins so you can have eternal life. You receive that gift through a single condition which means to trust in what Jesus has done. It is not necessary to call for a show of hands. It's not necessary to walk an aisle. It's not necessary to give money. It's not necessary to join a church. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you come under conviction because you haven't received this, and then you receive it by faith. Faith is another way of saying rely upon or have confidence in. And once that happens in a person's heart, once that happens in a person's life, they are now made right before a holy God. And God gives them a gift that they couldn't earn before. The world of religion wants you to strive to earn this. You can't earn it. 
you receive it as a gift. And I hope people in the quietness of their hearts today, even as I am speaking, perhaps all over the world that are listening to this via the Internet would place their faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for this very special time of the year and the greatest gift that we have, the provision of your son. I pray that many, many people would take advantage of this season and this unique opportunity by trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.